Welcome to the Conscious Leadership Club podcast, where we explore the intersection between Buddhist psychology, modern science and leadership. My name is Tim and this is the topic I'm currently studying at the University of Oxford and I'm excited to share my learnings with you. Hello and welcome to another episode. Today we unpack the buzzword mindfulness and we explore what mindfulness is by discussing different definitions, the misconceptions, so what mindfulness isn't, and also by looking at exciting study results. But before we dive in, why are we talking about mindfulness? What's the purpose? And if you've listened to some of the previous episodes, then you know that we've talked about how our mind is the foundation of our world and our experience, both positively and negatively. So the quality of your mind determines the quality of your life. And our thoughts are responsible for the reality we perceive and unfortunately all too often also for our dissatisfactions. And training the mind where thought processing occurs, so to say, is therefore a way to a greater resilience and well-being. And this process is made possible through mindfulness. But what exactly is meant by the term mindfulness? And one of the best known and most cited definition comes from John Kabat-Zinn, who is a professor from or was at the MIT. And he's been committed since the 70s, yeah, so 1970, to make mindfulness available in the Western world. So he basically took mindfulness out of yeah, the East and brought it into a Western context, first of all, um, yeah, in a medical context. And he defines mindfulness as a particular way of paying attention, purposefully to the present moment and without judgment. Yeah, we're going to unpack this definition uh, in a bit, but before I do that, I want to give you another very... Um, yeah, or rather short definition by a well-known meditation teacher called Joseph Goldstein. And he defines mindfulness simply as present moment awareness. And these are rather current definitions, but one of the oldest descriptions of mindfulness deals with villagers taming a wild elephant. And an untrained elephant is driven by impulses, can rage and leave destruction when it feels threatened. However, when trained, the elephant power becomes a great asset to the villagers. And you can think of the mind like an elephant. It can be destructive when it rages and is impulsive, but it can also be an extraordinary powerful tool when well-trained. And I like this picture uh, of the elephant a lot and, and mindfulness training kind of like helps us to yeah, train the elephant, so to say. And since Buddhist psychology was introduced into the Western context, teachers and students have really grappled with how best to define mindfulness. And it was Riz Davids who first translated the Buddhist technical term sati from the Pali language as mindfulness in 1881. And sati literally translates to remembering. And this does not refer to remembering some historical events or facts, but rather to remembering to return to clear awareness of the present experience. 
It indicates that the mind is anchored in the present moment and does not get lost in distractions or in thoughts of the past or future. And to make this a little less theoretical and more experiential, I invite you, if you're not driving or on the bike, just for a couple seconds to direct your attention to the present moment. And really feel what is happening in your body and mind right now in this moment. Pay attention to your bodily experience. Feel how your body feels when you touch the chair or how the clothes feel on your skin. Whether the shoulders are tense or relaxed. And perhaps you will start to feel how your mood is. Tired or energized. Restless or steady. Anxious or calm. And perhaps the whisper of thoughts in the background becomes perceptible. And to try to simply notice them without judging yourself. And if you had your eyes closed for a moment, feel free to open them again. And you may have noticed that when we try to direct our attention to our immediate experience in the present moment, we find that our mind has a strong tendency and habit of turning away from the present moment. And our mind can really be so forgetful and distracted and easily pulled in different directions, often without us being aware of it. And our negative thoughts, discomforts or desires powerfully pull us into the vortex of reactivity. And maybe you've experienced in this exercise how easily it is for our mind to wander off and leave the present moment and either pre-live or relive certain experiences. And the word sati, which means mindfulness, helps us to remembering to return to clear awareness of the present experience. And the word mindfulness is pretty hyped. And therefore, it is no wonder that the term is also prone to a lot of misunderstandings and cliches. So I just want to give you five of, yeah, I would say the most common misunderstandings. Number one is mindfulness is not relaxation. While relaxation or a sense of, yeah, relaxing can indeed be a positive outcome, it is about perceiving our current experiences as they are, whether positive, negative or neutral. And mindfulness does not mean to switch off, but rather to awaken to our experiences in life. Secondly, mindfulness is neither a quick fix nor is it easy. And although one of its functions is simple insight, stabilizing attention in the present moment, as you just experienced, is anything but easy. Therefore, mindfulness is simple but not easy. Thirdly, mindfulness is not about emptying the mind. I hear this over and over again. Oh, I didn't, this didn't, wasn't a good session because I couldn't, I couldn't stop thinking. And it is really not about not thinking or turning away from experience. Rather, it is about turning towards and opening up to experiences, no matter what the experience is. If you notice mind wandering, then this is what you, what you notice in the current moment. 
Then fourthly, mindfulness is not about dismantling or dissecting the self. Rather, it is about creating conditions under which we can learn something about our minds firsthand and through our own experience. And often this learning leads to a change in perspective and in a change in one's own actions. And last but not least, mindfulness and meditation are not one and the same. So meditation practices are founded almost every contemplative tradition and serve a variety of purposes, I would say. They can train attention, develop different types of awareness, um, cultivate mental attitudes and develop a sense of intentionality and ethics. And mindfulness, on the other hand, is a state, a process and a skill that we all have and that can be trained and cultivated through these meditation practices. And in mindfulness-based programs, these practices have a specific intention, namely to better understand the mind and then train it in the service of a life with less suffering or dissatisfaction and more joy and ease. Okay, now that we defined mindfulness and also talked about its misconceptions and what it, mindfulness is not, I would now like to share with you a well-known study called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. And in this study, um, the Harvard professors Daniel Gilbert and Matthew Killingworth asked nearly two and a half thousand participants at random times throughout the day uh, with the help of an app, A, how they are feeling right now, B, what they were doing in this moment, and C, whether they were thinking about their current activity, like watching TV or working, or something else, and if this was pleasant, neutral, or unpleasant. And the researchers found out that people spend almost half their time thinking about something other than what they're doing right now. And that this mind-wandering is always correlated with lower satisfaction. So when people are doing, when they, let's say, for example, they're writing an email, but they think about something else, then their mind is wandering, which is 50% of the time. And this mind-wandering is correlated with lower satisfaction. And in fact, how often our thoughts wander is a better predictor of our satisfaction than the activities we're engaged in. In other words, it is less crucial what you're doing, but whether you are present in the task at hand. And the study shows not just that mind-wandering is very common with the 50%, but also that mind-wandering is the cause and not the consequence of feeling less satisfied. Hence the name, a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. And this was such an important study. And here I want to make a link to the insights from neuroscience and in particular to the default network. So in another study, um, they put people in an FRI scanner and they tell them to not do anything. And what starts to show is a tremendous activity in the default mode network. And I explain in a second what that is. And so when scientists really ask the question, what is this all about? We tell them to do nothing. We put them in a scanner and suddenly this tremendous activity shows up in their brain. They realized that if you tell people not to do anything, they habitually go into thinking or what we just uh, said is mind wandering, right? And the default network is essentially a network of interacting brain regions that is most active when a person is not focused on the outside world and not concentrated on a particular task. So the question is, what were people then thinking about if you told them not to think about anything? And 
yeah, the result is they thought about their favorite subject and guess what their favorite subject is themselves. So thinking about stories of their past, what should they do next or better in the future or what didn't work out. And it turns out that mindfulness, in particular an eight-week MBCT, so mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, what I'm studying, or MBSR, which is mindful, mindfulness-based stress reduction, those causes, they reduce activity in the default mode network and what arises is more activity in the lateral network called the experiential network because they tune more into experience, right? And the other one is a more narrative um, network because it's 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 about the stories we tell so mainly mainly through thoughts and remembering this wandering or rather the present mo moment is what the word sati or the western translation of mindfulness means and another really interesting fact is sati is the most frequently used word in the entire pali canon which is the collection of teachings of the buddha and this is recorded in in the pali language you can Uh, almost say it's 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 the, the the Buddhist Bible, and mindfulness helps us to return to the present moment. And as we've just seen in the study, dissatisfaction arises as soon as our mind starts wandering off and getting self-involved. So mindfulness literally helps us to gather our scattered or distracted minds, and in particular our minds that love to think about ourselves, remembering the past and imagining the future. So mindfulness is really about tuning into our experience from a experiential rather than a narrative point of view. Physical sensations, feeling, mental states and the experience of the present moment are perceived and held in consciousness where they can be explored with an attitude of curiosity, patience and kindness. And this kind of awareness sounds remarkably simple, but as you just witnessed, is everything but easy. We can read or listen to a podcast about how to learn to swim, but to actually get in the water, especially if the water is bit turbulent is a completely different matter and learning mindfulness is similar it's a practice learned through experience even though a conceptual understanding is enormously helpful in supporting and advancing the learning progress okay then let's talk about what actually changes when we practice mindfulness and i think it comes Not as a surprise when I say that mindfulness has positive impact on mental health and well-being. I think that's that's quite um, yeah known, and and there's fast amount of good research, like um, the meta-analysis from Van Achtern um, from 2021. I put the, the the link in the show notes that show the effects of mindfulness-based programs like MBCT and MBSR for both clinical and non-clinical populations. But the interesting question is, from a science point of view, what are the mechanisms of change? Or put more simply, what changes when we practice mindfulness or when we complete a mindfulness course? And so when people take part in an MBCT or MBSR class or practice mindfulness, they improve their mindfulness skills, which means they have less cognitive reactivity, which is the tendency to react to small changes in mood with large changes in negative thinking. And they have more decentering, self-compassion, positive emotions and value consistent behavior. And decentering is a very important one because it means being able to take a step back from your thoughts and not confusing them as facts. And I want to return to the definition of mindfulness I provided at the beginning of this episode, namely that mindfulness is a way of paying attention purposefully to the present moment and without judgment. 
And how we could also explain this is that there's a what, a how, and a why of mindfulness. The what is paying attention. The how is purposefully to the present moment and without judgment. So it has a qualitative element. And the why is a clear, ethically guided intentionality and a map that shows us where we want to go away from stress and constant dissatisfaction and compulsive patterns of thought and behavior towards more inner freedom, joy, and well-being. And I would like to dive into each of those dimensions in more detail. So let's begin with, with what? The paying attention. Why is it important that we learn to pay attention? Because most of the times our attention is completely scattered. And I don't know about you, but have you ever had the situation where you wanted to look for something particular on your phone or your laptop and suddenly you find yourself scrolling minutes yeah, or even <laughs> sometimes hours scrolling through social media and after a while you put your phone away and you're wondering what the hell was I doing and what was it actually that I wanted to do? And as we just explored with the A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind study, As soon as our mind wanders, which is completely normal, you're not just missing out the richness of life, but you also end up more dissatisfied. And we also live in a world where our intention is really our most precious resource. So everyone is fighting for it, especially the big tech companies who literally hire the smartest people on this planet in order to seduce you. And the logic behind this is rather simple because the more they control your attention, the better it is for their business model. Because for them, it's all about the time you spend on their platform. So you can think of your attention almost like a flashlight beam. And imagine you could decide where to direct your light and what remains in the dark. And you can also play with your attention and make it more like narrower or wider, sharper or softer, depending on what you want. And most mindfulness trainings typically start with this focused attention. So that's, that's the what of mindfulness. Let's continue with the how, the qualitative attitude. So let's assume you learn to stabilize your attention and you become aware of your thoughts and your emotions. Maybe you notice your tiredness or how stressed you are from this busy work week and thoughts like, oh, I should be able to handle things better or I can't keep going like this week after week. You maybe notice them running through your head. Just noticing those negative thoughts is a first great step. But what is necessary is a certain qualitative dimension in how you accompany this noticing, namely with kindness, non-judgment and compassion. Because if you just notice your negative thoughts and you're not kind to yourself and you really think, oh, I should do this better and this has something to do with me and why can't I make any, any changes? This is going to be uh, that intense week after week. You're just going down the negative spiral. So the noticing really needs a qualitative element where you are not just noticing, but also kind to yourself. And this shows that mindfulness practice is not just about attention, but also about a certain inner attitude that we cultivate. Fundamentally, we can develop a kind of attention that is open, accepting, allowing, curious, non-judgmental, regardless of whether the experience is positive, negative or neutral. And instead of our habitual reaction of pushing away unpleasant thoughts uh, or emotions, we rather want to approach them. And the Buddha famously said, suffering needs to be understood. And 
in order to overcome our struggles, we first need to get closer to them and to understand them better. And this is also what differentiates mindfulness from mere attentional training. And a study called Self-Focused Attention in Clinical Disorders shows that self-focused attention is actually correlated with psychological symptoms and distress. And why, why is that, you might wonder? Because self-focused attention is often very critical and judgmental. So if you start becoming aware of the inner dialogue you're actually having with yourself, this becomes pretty obvious. And therefore, only once the self-focused attention gets a qualitative element like kindness and curiosity, it starts to become functional. So mindfulness cares. It is always wholesome. And for example, you can be an attentive sniper, but not a mindful one. And the word curiosity actually arises from Latin to care for something, cura. So when we start to engage in this practice and start to become curious, we look for things that take care of us. Which leads us to the why of mindfulness. And the why is a ethical dimension which shows us a path, namely the one from yeah, suffering distress uh, towards inner freedom or mental freedom and, and mental well-being. So mindfulness has this ethical dimension and when we focus on being present, we can sharpen our minds and improve our ability to respond appropriately. And this can lead to reducing or even overcoming stress. And the ethical dimension of mindfulness revolves around figuring out what is beneficial for us as individuals so that we can align ourselves with it. At the same time, we can choose to let go of patterns and behaviors that serve neither our own well-being nor that of others. And in difficult situations, we can deal with an attitude of self-compassion instead of self-criticism. And this opens up a positive approach that promotes our well-being and that of others. And before we wrap up for today, let's briefly summarize what we've been talking about. So mindfulness is like a, yeah, like a diamond with many facets. And these facets can be summarized under the what, how and why of mindfulness. The what is attention, focusing and expanded awareness. The how is an open attitude towards any experience with curiosity and care and concern. And the why of mindfulness is a clear, ethically guided intentionality and a map that shows us where we want to go. Away from stress, constant dissatisfaction and compulsive patterns of thought and behavior towards more inner freedom, joy and well-being. And then we talked about the misconceptions and what mindfulness isn't. So first of all, mindfulness is not relaxation. Second of all, mindfulness is neither a quick fix nor it's easy. Then mindfulness is not about emptying the mind. And mindfulness is not about dismantling or dissecting the self. And last but not least, mindfulness and meditation are not one and the same. And the study A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind from Harvard showed that A, it is completely normal that our minds wander. B, that this wandering is correlated with dissatisfaction. And C, the mind wandering is the cause and not the consequences of feeling dissatisfied. So... All in all, mindfulness training is about repeatedly returning to our experience in this moment, a process that yeah, develops the ability to maintain intention and stabilize it and thereby understand our present experience and better regulate our usual reactive patterns. And thus, we learn to respond to seemingly trivial triggers such as cell phone notifications, comment from colleagues or an email, either automatically or skillfully. 
And when we practice mindfulness, the following changes. There's a reduced activity in the default mode network. There is less cognitive reactivity and rumination. So basically we learn how to um, stop the overthinking. Then there's an increased decentering, which is the stepping away from thoughts and not taking them as facts. Increased self-compassion and increased positive emotions. And I want to end this episode by sharing a short story, which I first heard on a silent retreat. And in this story, a Buddhist student asks his master, what is the goal of a lifelong mindfulness practice? Not an unimportant question, I think. And the master holds in for a moment and then replies a right response. So how often do we react to a stimulus completely out of control? For example, to an email, to feedback we receive to our children or our partner. And then moments later think, hmm, I should have reacted differently. And just imagine how your life would be different if you had the right response instead of reacting habitually. This is it for today. In the next episode, we will talk about the four main functions of mindfulness. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time, keep on rocking and stay tuned. You're Tim.